This is Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, a podcast and radio program presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. Most any contemporary musical style can trace its roots back to the blues. Time Signatures explores the blues and its musical connections with captivating interviews, lively discussions, and news from the world of the blues. And now, here he is, your host, Jim Irvin. Yes, yes, I am home. Thank you so much, Parker. Appreciate that. And welcome to Time Signatures. My next guest on the show today got his first taste of the blues in the early 90s in the muddy potato fields of Idaho. His buddy Tom Moore introduced him to the Junior Wells and Buddy Guy classic Hoodoo Man Blues. Following that moment, he and his friend formed a band which is still regarded as legendary in the Boise region known as Fat John and the Three Slims. It wasn't long before our guest began, record, began recording and releasing his own music, and the rest, as they say, is history. History, I might add, that we will discuss in length. John Namath, welcome to Time Signatures. Good to be on the show, man. Thanks for having me. We are really glad to have you, and you know, there's so many layers to this onion that the best way to start is just to, we're going to begin on the outside and kind of work our way in. Is that fair enough? Yeah, man. Okay, great. Now, I would love to hear the story of how your friend Tom let you hear Hoodoo Man Blues that very first time. Uh, talk about that, because prior to that moment, you were actually more interested in the hip-hop and rock scene, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, he was taking some lessons from a guitar player in town, and uh, the guitar player gave him this uh, record, Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on a mixtape, actually, it was, or just a, not a mixtape, but a, a bootleg cassette tape. Okay, a little compilation-like? No, I'm sorry, it wasn't a compilation. It was it was the whole album of Hoodoo Man Blues. Gotcha. Yeah, and I I I, I took it back home, and and uh, I used to listen to music in the basement uh, of the house because my uh, my dad really hated rock and roll and blues and jazz. <laughs> I mean, with a passion. Okay. And so I, I'd listen to it in the basement. So I remember like taking that record downstairs and putting it on the headphones, having a swig of moonshine. <laughs> and uh, I had a spill in, in, in my house growing up. Oh, wow. That's my kind of family. Right, right. Uh, and, and I had a still in the basement of the house. So I had a swig of moonshine and, and put that record on. And, oh, man, it just resonated with me. I don't know. Everything about the album just captivated me. I was trying to figure out, you know, what are these songs about? Mm-hmm. Snatch it back and hold it. Maybe one more time. I ain't doing too bad, baby. I got you on my mind. You know, that that was the first song on the record was Snatch It Back and Hold It. Mm -hmm. What in the world is it talking about? Great imagery of tunes. The next song was like a ship's on the ocean. A song about, you know, a love that feels like it's lost at sea. And Hoodoo Man Blues, somebody done tried to hoodoo the Hoodoo Man. 
that was a wild tune to think about, you know, the the hoodoo man getting hoodooed. Oh yeah. And Chitlin's Con Carney was on there. And uh Junior Wells harmonica playing. I mean, man, he was one of the baddest dudes that ever lived and rarely copied because he's just he's just too damn cool. It's really hard to cop his cool. He's that cool. And he played Chitlin's Con Carney on that album, and and that really blew my mind. He's also playing harmonica with like just his, his rhythm and his groove was just so soulful and mm-hmm. captivating. And it was a small band. It was guitar, which the guitar player was Buddy Guy, and then this bass player named Jack Myers. Uh, on the album that guy's a very progressive blues bass player so the music was very progressive and the drummer was like the drummer was like a like a jazz player that w- could play with like ray charles is is great okay. at like boogaloo and things like that yep. funky there's a song on there good morning little schoolgirl." of course man i'm i'm like i'm like 15 years old you know, hearing this stuff, you know, I'm like, ah, good morning. <laughs> oh yeah, man. You know? Right. Uh, so there's all these tunes uh, that really resonated with me. And I, uh, I, I didn't play harmonica at that time. I was, uh, but I, I loved harmonica and I loved Junior Wells singing. Cause he reminded me a lot of one of my favorite singers, Louis Armstrong. Oh Yeah. I really bonded with him and 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 got into the mood of the album and the uh, the freedom in the music. It just sounded like these guys were getting together in the middle of the night, drinking moonshine or some kind of liquor and making a record. And come to find out, that's exactly what they were doing. <laughs> I guess that record was recorded in the middle of the night in Chicago. They'd already done a gig. They went to the studio and they cut the album. So they had already been feeling good. They already had some sure. drinks and they were already warmed up, ready to go. And they cut it like a jazz record. They cut it live and they they cut it all in the, you know, in in in, in a night. And that's the album. Now that begs the question: How do you know that story? Did you talk to Buddy Guy about it, or where did you hear the information? I can't remember who told me all this information, Okay, but I, I do know Buddy, and I do know Bob Kester from Delmark, God rest his soul, mm-hmm. and uh, and I do know Elvin Bishop, who used to work with uh, Junior Wells, and, I, and I've talked about that album with many different people, so I don't know who, who gave me that information, but uh, yeah, that, that's what I heard. Just kind of cool to know the backstory that... Well, John, I, I would have to turn back just a little bit here and step back to a little more of the beginning. Talk about your earliest musical influence. Who are they? Who were they? And how did they help you shaping your musical journey as you grew? My parents and my brother and sister, really, and my godmother. My godmother, she would come over to the house every day. She was my mom's best friend. She was a concert pianist that, uh, man, she got stage fright. Oh, wow. And uh, she graduated from Sherwood Music School, 
in Chicago uh, with a degree as a concert pianist. And she got her show all ready to go. And she was ready to go out and, and travel and perform. And she got stage fright and she couldn't do it. Wow. But like, get this, like once a year, when my mom had like decided to invite too many people over to her house for dinner, like mm -hmm. on a holiday, my mom was freaking out, trying to get the place clean, get all the food cooked. Um, my godmother would help her out, you know, to get everything ready. She would get behind the piano and at the house and she would perform a concert. Wow. And so she'd play for a couple hours straight and her emotional sense and attachment to the melody was greatness. And so once a year, you know, from the time I was a baby till, uh, till I was probably 18 years old, I would get a show once a year from her. And that, it, that blew my mind. And I, man, she, the way she, and she would, it's like out of nowhere, not even reading music, yeah, just sit down at the piano and take off. Absolutely. Uh, it's so cool to hear that story. Yeah. So it was my godmother. And then um, my mom used to love all the crooners. Okay. She listened to the crooners. Um, she was a big Doris Day fan, a fan of Bing Crosby. And so uh, those were, those were her two, two big favorites. And she had watched the Lawrence Welk show. <laughs> I'd watch that, you know, so I'd get into, uh, the joy and happiness and champagne bubbles of that. Oh yeah. Then there was my father who he listened to Hungarian music. Oh my. Traditional Hungarian music. And uh, that music has been ripped off probably more than any other music in the world. Melodies, famous melodies have been taken from that music and it's very harmonically jazz forward. So he didn't like American jazz music or blues, but what he liked was European, like Hungarian jazz, basically. So he would listen to that, and every morning he'd wake up and he'd put that music on. And some of the stuff is breakneck speed, like like Charlie Parker kind of stuff. Okay. And he would put that music on. He'd do his calisthenics every morning. Wow. <laughs> uh, for minutes to that music so every morning i'd get a dose of that like at 6 30 in the morning seeping into my brain through osmosis so you had a really and, really uh wide variety of music that you were impacted by growing up yes yeah oh absolutely and then my brother he loved he loved like outlaw country music and and 70s rock he was 14 years older than me, and so he was in high school in the 70s when I was born. So he listened to, like, Johnny Paycheck and Waylon Jennings sure. and Aerosmith and the Rolling Stones and all that. And then my sister, she liked all the Broadway music and, like, Broadway rock, like, you know, like Grease, you know, Livia Newton-John, sure. ABBA. So... Yeah, I got I got everything from everywhere. It was cool, and and it definitely changed me and made me a big music fan. 
You are listening to Time Signatures with Jim Irvin. I am uh, pleased to have John Namath here in the, well, not in the studio with me, but he's he's here with me, uh, being recorded at uh, at my home out here in Mason, Michigan. Why? Because I can record just about anywhere I want, which is kind of fun. But uh, we have got a lot to get to here. John, you released Jack of Harps in 2002. You actually uh, had Come and Get It in 2004, featuring Junior Watson. And uh, you then took off for Fr- uh, San Francisco, where you connected with Anson Funderburg and the Rockets. And I'd like you to talk about that period of your young career and how did the stint in California influence your music as you grew? It was really great moving to California because there were so many musicians dedicated to the art of performing blues. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved down there, I was working with so many different artists. Uh, there were all these guitar players that needed singers. So I worked with Kid Anderson. I worked with uh, Mighty Mike Shermer. I worked with uh, Anthony Paul, Kenny Blu-ray, and uh, Elvin Bishop. Mm-hmm. And I was working with these cats. And the word about me was just, I guess, taken off around the country. I I, uh, I was not really aware of who was you know familiar with me or not. And um, I got a call from Anson Thunderbird to uh, fill in for Sam Myers, okay, Mississippi uh, legendary blues man that fronted the band. I jumped at that opportunity, so I I uh, went to uh, Dallas, Texas, and learned all of Sam's tunes, about 30 of the songs. Wow. Got together with the band, and uh, we went down through the South and toured. Some of the greatest gigs I've ever done were those gigs, especially the one at the Delta Blues Festival in Greenville, Mississippi. It was just great. I mean, the audience, you know, blues is their religion, blues is their language. The um, crowd interaction with the music, every line I would say would get a reaction out of the audience. So it was really great. I'll never forget it change the way I sang the blues. You know, I have to ask you, because you and I spoke about this before we began recording this evening, the the blues in the United States versus the blues across the pond in, in Europe is a totally different animal, isn't it? Um, I would say over in Europe, there's uh, probably a lot more respect for the music mm-hmm. because uh, it's not native to the area. And uh, it's it's really cool, you know. Uh, the the gig opportunities are are fantastic over there, and and the uh, the crowds are a lot bigger for the mm. shows than here in the U.S. But the U.S. has been very good to me, maybe better than a lot of other artists. And um, I think part of that is because I'm a singer and a songwriter, right? And I'm someone that, you know, communicates the music and I'm keeping it fresh. So here in the States, people, you know, I I do well in the States too. But I think for a lot of the uh, older artists performing, a lot of the older blues, they do well over there in Europe. Mm -hmm. 
in Europe just loves just guitar rock blues, man. They just eat that up like it's going out of business, man. They just they just love it. They probably love that more than the songwriting itself. Well, you know, I I was sitting here looking at my notes because um, it's been said that you have the uncanny ability to skillfully blend retro and modern blues and soul into compelling music that is simultaneously old and new. And just listening to you share the stories about your blues journey really bears that out. I think that um, that it's it's kind of cool because there are people who are blues purists who just want the old traditional blues. And then there's the people that like to do the fusion with the soul and, and different things, a little funk, a little rock, different things like that. Where do you fall on that spectrum? I love to interpret black music. Uh, so I draw from so much of the blues of all the decades. I love soul music. Right. Uh, Percy Sledge and uh, and a blues singer named Magic Sam were actually my introduction to singing soul music. Okay. And I think, you know, combining those styles makes me more palatable to a a, a bigger audience. Although I would I would love to try to do just a real just straight up blues show. I don't, I don't know if it would sell the tickets. Uh, even Buddy Guy, you know, I mean, he's doing Jimi Hendrix and John Hyatt. And, <laughs> yes, he is. And everything under the sun, you know. And the moment he started doing all that music was the moment that he became the guy that's making a hundred thousand dollars a show. Yeah. So. Um, I think, you know, as time moves on, musical tastes, you know, start to differ. And especially since there's there's really no blues on the radio, uh, especially commercial radio, you have to familiarize yourself as an artist with, uh, with the, uh, the needs and desires of the audiences. Yeah, and I think a lot of the artists today are, they're becoming better attuned at reading the audience. And I, th I think that's why we're seeing a lot more of that, that fusion. Uh, Joe Bonamassa comes to, to mind. Even, even the younger artists like uh, uh, Toby Lee, who's coming up. He's 18 years old, and he, he does some incredible blues stuff. And then uh, Matthias Latine, who just won the IBC uh, this year down in Memphis. I mean, it, it seems like there's, there's definitely some growth. There's some... Um, it's reemergence, I guess, of blues with some various twists to it. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, uh, I think there's a lot of new talent in the blues. There was very, very, very few people into blues when I was getting into it. I mean, trying to find other musicians that played blues in the uh, in the '90s was uh, was pretty rare. Mm -hmm. Stevie Ray Vaughan being so popular. Yep. There were a lot of kids that tried to emulate Stevie Ray Vaughan, but there weren't a bunch of drummers or bass players, piano players, or people playing the, the other instruments. I think with YouTube and streaming um, has really opened the door for a lot of young talent to discover 
new music. And of course, and then they incorporate the music that they that they were raised in. Sure. And some kids are raised in blues, modern blues these days. Like here in Memphis, we have a station, a blues station here, WDIA, which has been around ever since BB King was just a, was a little tiny tot, and uh, they're still playing blues. Um, we had the Tri-State Blues Festival. A week ago down here and I, I i was performing somewhere else and that's a huge blues festival there's probably five or six thousand people at the venue and uh the modern blues music has a lot more soul in it than the uh the, the soul genre in it um but yeah there's there's talent everywhere they're coming up through the ranks I just wish there was more avenues for success for those guys. You know, a lot of those guys like Matthias Lapine and sure. those guys, you know, they don't have the they don't have the money like Joe Matamasa has to make themselves a star. That's fact. Um, yep. But guys like Gary Clark, you know, that's a really talented cat who uh you know, that came up through Austin and the great Austin uh, uh music scene there. And he's done really great with his music. He might be, uh, although maybe not, maybe the boomer audience doesn't like to consider him a blues artist, but I would <laughs> consider him probably the biggest next to Buddy Guy. Well, John, it has been an honor. I think I'm going to have you hang around for another take on this. Um, but real quick, do me a favor and let us know where we can find more information on you. Where can we get your music and your goodies and, and book you for a show? Well, you can go to johnnamath.com and uh, J-O-H-N-N-E-M-E-T-H dot C-O-M. And if you want to book me, you can find information there to uh, contact my booking agent and my publicist and everybody like that and uh, get whatever you need. Sounds good. John, we want to thank you very much for being on Time Signatures. That's going to wrap it up for this edition. We want to thank everybody for tuning in and helping us keep the blues alive. We will see you on the next round. This has been Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. For more information on cabs, visit capitalareablues.org. You can find this episode and past episodes at lccconnect.org. The Time Signatures theme song, Michigan Roads, is used by permission and was written by Root Doctor, featuring Freddie Cunningham. Until next time, keep on keeping the blues alive.